created live on Fireside. Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next evolution of professional development in higher education. Every week, it is my honor to bring you higher education thought leaders, topics of note, current trends, and new information to ponder. Shows are replayed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and right here on Fireside Chat. Subscribe, rate, and share on your favorite podcast app. On today's show, executive leadership within higher education requires the political savvy of a successful mayor, the fundraising acumen of a major gifts officer, and the ability to leverage academic curiosity alongside nimble management, all the while maintaining campus traditions and respecting the evolution of the institution. On today's show, we are joined by Dr. Walter Kimbrough, an expert and scholar and former HBCU president who will provide insights into the opportunities and challenges that are unique to HBCU executive leadership. Excited to have Dr. Walter Kimbrough, who is a native of Atlanta, Georgia, here with me today. Uh, a salutatorian and student body president. He graduated from high school in 1985. We are the same age, by the way. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we're both looking pretty good. Um, in 1985, and went on to earn degrees from the University of Georgia, Miami University of Ohio, and a doctorate in higher education from Georgia State University. A veteran of student affairs, serving at Emory University, Georgia State, Old Dominion University, and Albany State, where he was appointed to vice president of student affairs in the year uh, 2000 at the age of 32. In October of 2004, he was named the 12th president of Philander Smith College, a private HBCU in Little Rock, Arkansas. And in 2012, he became the seventh president of Dillard University, a private HBCU in New Orleans, uh, a role he served in for 10 years. Uh, since leaving Dillard, Dr. Kimbrough has continued his scholarship and, and service to the profession in his appointment as executive residence at the uh, University of Southern California's Race and Equity Center and interim executive director of Morehouse College's Black Men's Research Institute. Dr. Kimbrough has been recognized for his research and writing in HBCUs and African-American men in college. He is noted for his prolific and engaging use of social media and has been published in various publications such as the Chronicle of Higher Education, Case Currents, and Arkansas Life. He has been named to so many lists, you need a list to keep track of the lists, including uh, top 25 college presidents to follow on Twitter, diverse issues in higher education's top 25 to watch, Ebony Magazine's Power 100, and NBC News. Uh, thegrio.com's 100 African-Americans making history today. He lives in New Orleans with his wife and his two children. Uh, so help us uh, welcome Dr. Kimbrough here to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Thank you for being with us today. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Um, to start, uh, can you provide me and the listeners with some insight into your journey to HBCU leadership? Your own education did not bring you to an HBCU. Um, so what moved you to this direction? Well, so um, 
I originally wanted to be a veterinarian um, and I went to the University of Georgia because it's one of the top veterinary schools in the country. And I also got into Tuskegee, which is also one of the top schools. Um, but since I was doing undergrad at Georgia, it made sense just to stay there um, and to, to complete there. And I got in early and then realized this really wasn't what I wanted to do. But I always thought that even if I became a veterinarian, I would end up on a campus because I had just such a great undergraduate experience. And so I was talking to a president of an HBCU and said, I think I might want to be a college president one day. So what should I do? So he sort of put me on the path. Um, but I mean, I started my career even at places like Emory and Old Dominion and Georgia State. I think um, my rationale for wanting to do HBCUs is firstly, you know, first of all, I grew up in Atlanta where, I mean, there's a, a hub of some of the top HBCUs in the nation. So when you grow up in a place like that, you're exposed to HBCUs all of the time. And so you understand the value of the institutions. Secondly, having worked at institutions with a lot of resources like in Emory, you start to think to say, well, what about students at places that don't have the same kind of resources that can't attract the same kind of high quality people? And so for me, that made sense to say, well, you could, I mean, you've worked at these, you know, well-known, wealthy institutions. Why don't you go do something else? Right. And I found it very fulfilling. Even I, I believe you still need to have people like that at all those institutions as well. But for me, uh, at that point in my career, I was like, no, it's time to do something different. So that's sort of how I got on the HBCU track. That's a great point. Um, as someone who myself has worked at very well-resourced institutions like Boston University and Babson College, where you know I, it, there was a great amount of resources regardless of the size. They're two very different sized institutions. Right. When I worked at uh, institutions that serve predominantly first-generation students, I found it a lot. It was a very different type of attachment that you have mm -hmm. to the goals and the mission and the students. So I think that's a super uh, way to frame your, your journey to that space. Um, Something I wanted to make sure people were aware of in this as we're framing this conversation is that um, since 2020, the number of students enrolling at HBCUs, um, and this is since the pandemic uh, uh, period of time, are seeing a historic jump. Um, so HBCUs seeing this historic jump uh, uh, in enrollment with campuses like Morgan State and Baltimore, for instance, reporting a 58% increase in undergraduate applications in 2021 compared to 2019. Um, I'd like to know your your take on the increase in interest in HBCUs. Uh, is there a connection to the visibility that has been provided by the Biden-Harris administration? Um, has that been part of what's fueling this, or do you think it's something else? So, I, you know, I look at it now as a part of we're in the year eight of, of this sort of what I call the Missouri effect. Okay. So if you recall in the fall of 2015, there were these protests by black students at the University of Missouri just complaining about everything that's going on, which ended up causing the president of the, the, the campus and the chancellor of the system to resign. Right. And after that, going into 2016, you saw black students on campuses all across the country raising the same kind of issues. It, it sort of coincided, and I don't think everybody paid attention to it, with the, the politics that were happening Trump is now he's president. He's going through his campaign in 2016 when all these things are happening. Um, so I think that was a part of it, some of the initial interest. Uh, and I think people start to say, I I'm feeling, you know, these aggressions on predominantly white campuses. I need to maybe give HBCUs a second look. So that's when you first start to see and it continued throughout Trump's presidency. And then I think uh, after George Floyd in 2020, with you know Kamala Harris and being the vice president, 
that became another uh, way that HBCUs were, were lifted up. And so there was this increased visibility. So I think that you, for me, like I said, I go back now eight years. I think this has been a process. The, the other caveat that I would add, though, is that overall during that period of time and over the last 10, 12 years, there's been a decrease in higher education enrollment every year. So overall, the total number of students at HBCUs is lower but is the percentage drop is not as low as it is for all black students, mm -hmm. which means that there are some students now that are making a different choice. So the percentage of black students attending HBCUs has actually started to tick up. So if people look at overall numbers, they'll say, well, yeah, the HBCU numbers are down. I'm like, all the numbers are down. Numbers are down. So that's not, I said, but when you start looking at the, the people who are going, a greater percentage of them are choosing HBCUs. And so that's the way that, that I sort of, you know, contextualize it. I think it's a, a, when you look at this and you're and I think that that contextualization is super important um, and why it might be kind of fueling uh, student choice. Uh, I keep saying to folks who um, you know my daughter is a, a sophomore in high school and there's a lot of people kind of talking about obviously okay our kids have to start thinking about going to where they're going to college and all that and I say look I. I, I I know enough about how the sausage is made after 30 years working in higher education. I'm going to tell you something. This is really an opportunity for traditional age college students to go to a place that gives them joy and belonging yeah. more than it is about whatever bumper sticker you put on your car, mom and dad. And so there's a different kind of uh, vibe going on right now in terms of why students might be selecting the institutions they're selecting. So your your insights there, I think, are really interesting as far as the HBCU selection. In your understanding, is that uh, uptick in enrollment or that visibility of enrollment actually happening across the 100 or so institutions that are HBCUs, or is it uh, con concentrated on specific types of institutions? Yeah, it's it's been uneven. So the, the schools that have done the best would be most of the public HBCUs, and because you still have some of the financial challenges, particularly post-COVID, people still just don't have the resources to go. So a public education is still more affordable. So that's why you're seeing some of the big jumps at a Morgan State, a Delaware State, Tennessee State, because they've had housing issues there, Jackson State, North Carolina a and I mean, those, the bigger schools are getting bigger. Okay. So that's where it is. But some of the um, smaller private HBCUs that have excess capacity could use additional students too. So I think there still is some of the, the brand awareness. And I, I mean, I think one of the challenges I, I have seen as a president of two HBCUs that did not have football or bands is that a lot of times when people talk about the HBCU experience, they leave with those too. So for most of the private institutions that don't have, or are not most, well, maybe about half of the private institutions that don't have either of those, you're sort of, you know, trying to justify your HBCU-ness, if you will, because you don't have those kinds of things that people, when they, you know, you see the advertising and anything about HBCUs, it's bands and football. And when you don't have those, it's like, what do you have? So you're in an interesting place. Uh, and so I think that's been harder for schools. And then if you're, we've seen this with national data too, location matters too. At least I was at two schools that were in, in real cities, Little Rock and now New Orleans. But if you're in some little place that nobody knows about, that's a challenge. But that's a challenge for all of higher education. If you're in a rural place, people aren't really gravitating to that. So uh, it hasn't been even overall. The sector has done fine. But um, 
just, you know, it, it is it's uneven in terms of who has benefited from that. And so, you know, one of the things I've tried to tell people is that some of the over the last two to three years, some of the smaller schools probably should have been much more aggressive in their marketing and branding to sort of get on the HBCU interest. And I don't think everybody did, but that was their chance to say, how can I ride this wave of all this HBCU publicity? Um, that was an opportunity that everybody didn't didn't do. And I think some some of them will pay a price for that. Yeah. Um, I myself have been an executive uh, leader. I was vice president for student affairs at Mount Ida College, which was a small New England college that closed in 2018, uh, located just outside of Boston. Um, and the key reason for their financial instability, as I always like to say to people, is that there was decades, not just, you know, the last president didn't didn't do it any favors, but there were decades upon decades of um, uh, deferred maintenance. Uh, and I think it was mismanaged. And uh, it's very hard to get alums and other donors to do things like, can you give us money to fix the roof? Like people don't want to give money to fix the roof. Okay. Right. Um, <clears throat> I saw a report from the Thurgood Marshall College Fund uh, that said on average HBCUs have about $81 million in deferred maintenance. Um, unlike a Mount Ida where mismanagement was a major contributor to deferred maintenance, the report from Thurgood Marshall points to decades of underfunding um, and discrimination from state and philanthropic uh, funding sources. Um, as a former HBCU president, what uh, have you seen firsthand and how is this having an impact in the long-term health and sustainability of these institutions? Right. So I think that there are two, two ways to look at it. So Thurgood Marshall College Fund represents the public HBCUs. And there have been studies, credible studies, to show how state legislators or state legislatures have intentionally underfunded those institutions. I think Forbes did a study a couple of years ago. And so there were like 500, 600, 700, a billion dollars worth of underfunding over decades. That was done intensely. And, and some of the underfunding was if an institution was a land grant institution and the, the federal government says you have a match, the state never gave them their match. So they used their own money to get their match to use the federal fund. So then they missed all that other money. So for some of the big publics, their uh, deferred maintenance clearly ties into um, deliberate state underfunding. I think that that's, and even states, I mean, state funding, they did a study here in Louisiana. LSU probably has over a billion dollars worth of deferred maintenance too. They have a leaky roof in it. And this is LSU. It's the flagship. So it's, I mean, part of it is deferred maintenance is everybody's. There's actually just an article in the Chronicle, maybe last week that talked about deferred yeah, maintenance yeah. and talked about the California system. So it's everybody's problem. Um, but for the state HBCUs, is different for them. For private HBCUs, it's because there has been a lack of interest from philanthropy in those institutions. And so there was great philanthropy in the beginning to get them started, but then that waned over time. And so now you've gotten these institutions that are trying to make it on their own. You know, they're dependent on groups like UNCF to help raise some of the money, which I think has been very important. But you haven't had significant private donors come in. That's why the when Mackenzie Scott, you know, dropped in the way that she did, it was a shock for everybody because nobody's seen that in in decades. Yeah. So that's a part of the challenge. So their challenges are a little bit different because you, you don't have a right to state funding. So that's money that you have to raise. But as you have uh, 
articulated so clearly. And I always tell people, nobody, I've never had a person to say, you know what, I'm going to give you money to do redo the HVAC system. And I want you to call it, you know, the Walter Kimbrough HVAC system and put the plaque on it. Nobody wants that. They want the scholarship with their name on it or the building with their name or the room with their name. But it's like, but I need a new HVAC system. Yeah, That's not, it's not sexy. Start a program with their name on it. That is only going to be funded for ten years, and then right. you're going to, have to find a way to. Fund you got to pay for it, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I think. When I first became a president, somebody said, "Yeah, the new president has to pay for the previous president's visions." So <laughs> sometimes people have an idea to say, "Oh, we need to start X, Y, and Z," and then you come in new, and you're just like, "Well, now how do I pay for this?" I mean, so you get worried. That's why I think about things to say. Are there some things we started? Like we started actually a, a pre-law program. Uh, at Diller. And I actually was on campus yesterday to sort of hear about the program. And the funder actually came back with another $300,000. So I was like, ooh, they got additional funding. So that was that was good. But uh, yeah, that's part of the challenge. <laughs> well, you know, because I think what when I was uh, getting ready for this show, it went I went back to uh, something I saw a few months ago about Bethune-Cookman down in Daytona. Florida. Yeah. And they unfortunately were hit by not just one hurricane this year. I think they got hit by two. Right. Um, but, and, uh, and then they had a contract dispute with uh, former NFL uh, player, Ed Reed, who was supposed to be hired as their football coach. And he went on TikTok and did a whole big thing that uh, brought the national awareness to the institution. Um, but hundreds of students posted videos and then local news came in and, I've been in the middle of, you know, bad incidents on a campus when it comes to uh, mold or asbestos or something like that. And so when they had the um, the news come into one of the residence halls and there was a young man's room and it, we all have kids in our lives and they have 7,000 pairs of sneakers and, you know, they're mm -hmm. like kind of lined up in the room and this kid's sneakers were lined up literally end to end in the room and they were covered with black as midnight mold mm -hmm. and that's what this kid's room looked like and I, I literally gasped because I was like I, I can't believe someone's living in that um, when this kind of incident hits the media um, how do you think it impacts executive leadership across HBCUs do you think that they're all sitting back I mean if you were sitting in your room in your office at Dillard and you saw this come up what would be your your initial response oh I hate it because so there, it isn't that there aren't mold issues other places. Um, I mean, particularly, you know, I'm in New Orleans. And so if you go without power for a little while, you could have mold here. Um, so that's, I mean, it's something, it's a constant battle here. Um, but it's minor. And I did a presentation once for some of our alums. We we're talking about mold. There were some mold issues that we were able to take care of. And I showed them the PowerPoint with pictures of mold. And I said, you know, you've heard people talking about mold. And I was like, oh, I didn't label this. This is a picture from Harvard. Because Harvard had a huge mold issue and they've had it for years. I was like, yeah. I said, Harvard has $50 billion endowment and they're struggling with mold. So it's just something that, you know, and there are certain yeah. things you, you, right, it happens. So you try to make sure you remediate it. You try to update your, once again, that wonderful HVAC system that nobody will put their name on, I, you know, so I can have the best HVAC to prevent that from happening and, you know, helping students to do certain things and make sure they're cleaning and not, you know, leaving water, everything. And those kinds of things you have to, all, you know, try to understand that as well. So it's it becomes frustrating because it becomes this narrative to say, well, there they go. They can't do anything right. 
even though you're under resourced. I think I looked at that issue in particularly different because that was a failure of leadership. And I'm not talking about the president. I'm talking about the board Mm. that the previous president announced two years ago that he had taken a job in in Massachusetts and he's gone and they haven't filled that position, but they could fill a football coach in two months. That's the problem. So you don't have anybody there to really lead to address those issues. They're on their second interim in two years. So there's no urgency to have a president to address those issues. That's why you have a fiasco with Ed Reed, because you don't really have real leadership there. So a lot of times HBCUs, and it's not to say other institutions don't have board issues either, because they do. But um, that is a great example of poor board leadership. And that's why. And so I I cringe at that even another on another level, because that could have been avoided had you had competent leadership. Right. And the board, people forget how important a functioning and uh, engaged board is. And putting those kind of uh, leadership responsibilities at the forefront when you don't have executive leadership that is dealing with day-to-day operations of the institution, making sure that, you know, the lights are on, things are chugging along, things are good, and they're putting things like football first. That's a failure. It doesn't matter what kind of institution it's at. But I'm glad you brought up that kind of thing of, okay, well, here's the narrative. This is what's going on. HBCUs are getting this money and this kind of uh, spotlight treatment from Washington. And then you have this happening there are going to be people who are going to say, they were supposed to be sending all this money down these yeah. schools? Come on. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a it's an honest assessment. Um, and uh, I think it's uh, absolutely important for us to keep that in mind is that these kind of board issues happen across higher education. And right. if you look at any institution where there's some kind of massive failure, especially closures, you're going to see the board is, is highly responsible in that regard. Um, we know that... Ex- executive leader leadership across higher education is a difficult task. Um, as I said in the introduction, it is this almost like being a mayor of a small city. Um, and in some cases, depending on how big the school, it could be the yeah, it could be a mayor. big city. Yeah. Um, you know, do you feel like there's extra scrutiny? I mean, we just talked a little bit about this, but do you think that the scrutiny or the understanding of the of the, the mission of the HBCUs is, is well understood across higher education? Do you think even across from presidents at non-HBCUs, uh, looking at HBCU presidents, do you think that there's a, a clear understanding of the of the difference or the similarities there? No, I, I mean, I think people uh, across higher ed understand the differences and the challenges. Um, they might not be able to relate to them well, but I think when you explain it, I think people sort of, you know, they're able to take that in and, and understand. So that's not, I think the issue with HBCU presidents, just like any college president, is that any and everybody who's gone to a class at a college thinks that they know your job. And that's the challenge. It's just that every, it's just like somebody who's a teacher in K through 12, because they went to school, they know what the teacher should do. So it's just one of those fields where, you know, the challenge is even students who've been there for a semester. And I'm like, you, you haven't even earned any credits yet. How are you going to tell me how to do my job? Like you have no credits, like zero. And so you, you can't say, well, you should do X, Y, and Z. It's like, you haven't seen the budget. You're, none of that. But people feel like they've gone to school and they know how to do your job. And that's right. the that's the hardest part, I think, when you have a job like that. It's not, you know, somebody who is a surgeon in a specialty. I mean, you might have questions, but in the end, you know, you know nothing about what they're talking about. 
you know nothing about it. So it's just it's just one of those fields where everybody's an expert. You think that, you know, because you've had some good experiences across uh, uh, institutions that are PWIs and you've also been at the HBCUs. And I have uh, some friends who work in executive leadership at uh, some HBCUs, and they talk about sometimes they have to struggle with this idea of tradition on campus um, and where tradition lies. And, you know, when I teach uh, in my graduate program uh, that I teach in, I talk to my students about every institution has big T traditions, which is your doctrine. It's why you exist as an institution. Um, It's your mission. Okay, and then your little T traditions, which are the things people literally lose, they pull their hair out about. And those little T traditions can be anything from uh, how we celebrate homecoming all the way to literally a a tradition is how you do registration. Like people don't think of registration as a tradition, but Mm -hmm. you've, I'm sure, been on a campus where we're changing how we do registration and everyone like literally like loses their mind for a period of time. Do you find that there's a stronger push-pull around little T traditions on HBCU campuses or in your vast experience uh, at a variety of institutions, where have you seen uh, where people kind of dig their heels in a bit more and from an executive leadership approach where you have to kind of finesse things to to move an institution forward? Yeah, no, I, I think for a lot of institutions, some of those little T traditions can be some of the thorniest issues that you deal with. I mean, and I think you can resolve them. I think about a couple at Dillard. Um, Dillard's tradition is for commencement, you graduate outside, we have this avenue of the oaks. And so it, it might even be more big T tradition now, but see, nobody walks down the avenue of oaks until you're a senior. And then you walk you're baccalaureate and for commencement. So what happens when it rains? Well, when it rains, you would have people in the gym, people in one of the auditoriums, people in the chapel. So you have people in three different places and you try to live stream in the other two. Uh, And so my first year I was in Little Rock for the commencement at Philander Smith. And I started seeing the forecast and I asked everybody, I was like, okay, so what's, what's your rain plan? And so that was the rain plan. I said, that's not a rain plan. It's like, you're going to scramble and try to give people tickets. And I was like, that's not a plan at all. And so um, the University of New Orleans, which is 10 minutes away, they host their own graduation and Southern University of New Orleans. Theirs is on Friday night. Southern University of New Orleans is Saturday afternoon. So it's already set. Saturday morning is open. And that's when we graduate. Yeah. I said, let's do UNR Arena. Yeah. So we finally had a rain plan. And then I think some people got there is is much easier and it's cheaper to do because it's very expensive with the setup for an outdoor commencement. I mean, you're talking about $100,000 in terms of production. So this is cheaper. It was easier. It's not going to be too hot. You're going to, so some people quietly really liked it, but then you had students are saying, well, no, it's the, and then the very next year, I think we're about to have it. And the weather was iffy and we had Michelle Obama coming to speak and the security people thought the campus just being open is a security nightmare. And then with the weather, a friend of mine just said, look, if it's raining, she's not coming out there. Y'all better be inside. (laughs) So, so people got used to that. And so it was, it was, you know, there's still people who are sort of upset because we had to, I think we're inside maybe three or four years during my 10 years there, maybe three. Um, But I think people accepted it to say, we need to have something because I told students my first year, they said, well, it might not be raining that morning. I said, it's been raining all week and I am not going to have your grandmama sit out there in the mud. I'm not doing it. 
I am not doing that. So people had to get over that, you know, and so I think we've worked that in as, and they're still trying to figure out, well, what do you do for the classes of people when it rains and can they walk? I said, but y'all aren't the first people that have, my board chair at the time, she graduated, I want to say in 1969 or so. And I asked her about it. She says, the only thing I can remember about my commencement that it was wet and it was hot. I said, yeah, it's, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're, we're going to do it inside. It's already set up. It's just, you know, plug and play. And so that was something that we we've worked at. Exactly. That's it. That's all you have to do. So it was really easy. And I think people understood that. So by the time I think the last one we did indoors was right before the pandemic, 2019, you didn't have anybody complain about it because everybody knew this is what we do now. So that's, you know, changing, you know, you know, little cheat tradition. So and I believe because there were times there were previous presidents talked about never doing it outside. I was like, no, no, don't do that, because I felt like that is a great tradition. I think the pictures look better when it's outside because it gives you a unique campus feel versus, you know, sterile inside. So I really like it outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that's one of those. I'll never forget it because uh, people were just sort of hurt. And I was like. We, we got to have, we have to have a real rain plan and that's not a rain plan. No. And you have to be able, I was just having a, a walk down the, you know, kind of the minds of, I, as someone who has ever run a commencement, you always know people who run commencement because we have different types of ways to check the weather. We have different types of ways. Right. Like, I literally had a, a facilities director say to me, oh, have you looked at this app? This is what the fishermen use. It tells you how much there's actually yeah. weather coming in. I'm like, oh. I'm downloading the Fisherman's app. Okay. But when you have these traditions, one of the biggest things for me was always, uh, especially at my last institution, is we had a, we had over 60% first-generation college students. And first-generation students, rightfully so, like to bring the entire neighborhood to graduation. Yep. And we got to the point where we were saying, oh, we're just not going to be able to accommodate this in the tent that we had. We used a tent. Mm-hmm. And we're like, not gonna be able to accommodate this. I said, then we need to come up with a plan B because telling people they can't bring somebody is going to be a bigger issue for the culture of our institution Absolutely. than anything. So, so that was always a piece. Um, but when you were saying about a tradition, I have to, I do have to have a shout out to my father, 81 year old Tom Antonekia, who, when he graduated from Colgate university in 1964, um, the tradition at the time was you lined up in order of GPA. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was second to last in line. <laughs> so, not a good day for my dad and his parents. Okay. So. But, but, later, but later on, though, he could wear that with a badge of honor. So that becomes right. one of those funny stories that you, you can tell over and over again. But I mean, just, I mean, just to follow up, I learned at Philander Smith College. Now, we had our commencements inside at the convention center. So that was never an issue. But I was shocked where you would have 100, 125 graduates and 3,000 people there because literally sometimes the church had a bus and the entire bus came from Memphis to see so-and-so graduate. So that was another reason that I said, you you know, for us at Dillard, with all the spaces that we had, 1,000 in the gym, 800 in the chapel, 400 in the other in the auditorium, that's 2,200 spaces when we're going to have 4,000 people. It, so, you know, you're going to make them try to figure out, no, we're not. So that was another reason for me. Uh, and then particularly when we had Michelle Obama, we had 7,000 people there because you had people coming just to see Michelle Obama as well. So sure. uh, it was no way it was even going to be rough on campus because it would have been just so spread out. So right. we really was in the best place so people could really see it was a better you know, production for that event. Yeah. 
Um, but that is that's important. First generation, everybody's coming. And I don't right. I'm like you. It's like we don't want to tell them no. No. And I'll never forget. There was one morning I, I got up. We had a, a midday commencement. The tent officially opened at like 7 a.m. or whatever the time was. And I was doing my little walk around at the crack of dawn. And there was a Winnebago pulled up onto campus. And this, it looked like, you know, like that, that like kind of cartoon clown car where like this, like how many people are coming out of this vehicle? I don't know how many people are coming out. And everybody was, as they got off to, they just kept like kind of fixing their collars and just got off. Everybody was dressed to the nines, ready to go. There must have been 20 people got off this Winnebago. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we here to see. And they said who it was. They wanted to be the first people in the tent and they wanted to make sure they were down in that front row. And that, I will yep. never forget that because that is just the quintessential first gen moment. Yep. Um, and I, all I had to do though was tell them to move the damn Winnebago because it was blocking the entrance to the truck, to the, uh, to the yep. tent. Um, so we are here. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We are talking to uh, Dr. Walter Kimbrough about HBCU uh, leadership coming up uh, in the next few weeks uh, and into the ends of May and June. Uh, We have Rick McLennan. He is the former president of North Idaho College. Uh, Rick will be here to talk about how the politically charged nature of education is really hitting executive leadership. Uh, Rick was voted out of his position at North Idaho. He's now uh, leading some of the community colleges out in California. Uh, but but Rick has a lot of great stories and scary stories about what happened when he was moved on from a group of uh, leadership from uh, North Idaho, from the state, um, that was a kind of MAGA-focused uh, uh, group of folks. And now North Idaho is actually uh, at risk of losing their accreditation because of the actions of uh, the state board. So we're going to talk to Rick about that, what he's learned, and the cautionary tale he has for uh, executive leadership in uh, states that might be more red than blue. Um, in uh, Also in May and June, we're going to be featuring some shows. Um, unfortunately, I am part of a growing uh, national uh, club of in- institutions that have closed and people who have had to lead institutions through closure. <laughs> So I'm inviting people who have had this shared experience onto the show, and we can talk a bit about what that looks like, as well as uh, what to uh, what to do around mergers. We have some experts on mergers and closures coming on, um, and then we have a policy board from an organization uh, that published a three-part white paper called Beyond Transfer. Uh, the uh, white paper looks at how transfer policies are putting transfer students at a disservice related to completion rates, financial uh, debt, and why accreditors should be paying more attention to transfer students and institutional policies. So those are the things that are be coming up in the next few weeks, up and through the, uh, the end of June. So I hope you're able to join us uh, to make sure that uh, you are part of everything. Make sure you're following me here on Fireside, uh, and hopefully you will get the alerts for upcoming shows. Um, so, Dr. Kimbrough, uh, you and I have another thing in common. Uh, we came up through the ranks of student affairs, um, and your first executive role was a vice president for student affairs. Talk to us about the benefit of a student-centered viewpoint in your role as president, and specifically how it may serve an HBCU in a unique way. Yeah, so, you know, I'm in a phase where I'm sort of trying to figure out next steps, and, you know, I, I read a lot of 
presidential position profiles and everybody says they want a student-centered president. Um, and then they pick folks who really have had little experience with students. <laughs> it's like, it sounds good. Everybody's like, yeah, we want somebody student-centered. But then you pick people, it's like, man, they barely saw them in the classroom. So it's, I don't understand what you're doing. Uh, I, I mean, I have a bias, but I believe a chief student affairs officer is one of the best tracks for becoming a president because particularly today, um, it, think about if you come up through the faculty ranks and you have your class and you earn tenure, you become a department chair, those kind of things. When the real campus happens outside of in your classroom at night and on the weekends, you're at home. Nobody's calling you when cars are broken into, when somebody uh, has a, a alcohol poisoning, uh, if there are protesters, nobody's calling you. You don't deal with any of that. And I, I would argue that most VP for academic affairs, or there's something that like that going on, they aren't the person that's, they're calling the president and they're calling the chief student affairs exactly. officer. <laughs> exactly. So we're going to be at everything that happens. And so, I mean, as a VP, you know, even when I was at Albany State, athletics reported to the president. But one year, the first day of practice, a student passed out and died. And the president said, here you go. So, I mean, it was so I'm the one managing all of the things around that situation because it's a student affairs type situation. So working with the police and the coach and all those kinds of things. So when things just happen, you don't freak out. You're used to this. And that's why I was telling people when the pandemic began, I was actually in Washington, D.C. at an HBCU fly in that was bipartisan. I think Tim Scott is taking the lead on this. And they had Democrats come and Chris Coons out of Delaware came and said, well, I just wanted to come say hello to you. The Democrats are at a retreat. Uh, we're getting this update about, you know, some kind of biological concern that, that might be threatening the country. And it's the way that he said it. I'm there with my phone texting RVP for student affairs said, uh, pull together your emergency management team. Something's going on. I don't know what it is, but it's not good. It's not good. And Three weeks later, we're shutting down. I mean, that's how fast it happened. But it was just sort of like, and so, you know, people are trying to figure out how do we get a platform? How do we move class online? How do we do this? How do we help students get home? All those kinds of things. And so for a lot of presidents, I think it was extra stressful, which is why you saw a lot of people who started right before the pandemic quit during or immediately after. And they're still quitting yeah. because they were like, I didn't sign up for this. This is just too yeah. much. For me, the student affairs guy was like, okay, this is something new and different. Let's see how do we. And so you, I leaned into it. And, you know, I was actually teaching a class when it all happened. So I could relate to faculty members moving a class online because I had to do the yep. same thing. Yep. So it was, for me, it was just a new experience and opportunity um, that I just sort of leaned into. But that's because of being a student affairs person. You know, I tell people, if you can be a coordinator Greek life, you can do anything because that's the most. That is the most unpredictable job on the campus because you don't know what they're going to get yeah. into. So um, I did that. And I did that at Emory. So you got, you know, wealthy and privileged getting in trouble, which is a whole nother issue. A right. Exactly. Show. So, that is a yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a whole lot going on there. But it was great, great preparation. I think you just learn how to do all kinds of student affairs. You deal with everything. And that's why I watch, you know, there are more and more studies that say fewer and fewer provosts want to be a president. I believe them Absolutely. because it is not like I said, they go home. Nobody calls them when something happens on campus. They're at home relaxing. Mm -hmm. 
It's the president and it's the chief student affairs officer. That's right. And the other thing that I think is a, an important piece to remember here is that student affairs folks deal with the human condition more than any other person on campus. Yeah. And we see our students at their very most awesome and then we see them at their lowest flow. And right. we have to make sure that we have put our eye on the prize, which is we have to get that, that student to walk across that stage. And what do we have to do to position our programs to make sure we're doing the right by the student? And I think sometimes when it comes to student affairs, I think one of the things that I would say to a, a student affairs professional who wants to be a college president um, is that you have to stop acting like you're the second banana. You have to stop right. stop thinking That's, that yeah. you don't have uh, what it takes to do the work. Some of the best presidents I've seen are people who came up through the ranks of student affairs, um, yeah. and they have to they have to sit on committees with academic folk all the time, and they are you just have to make sure that you don't walk in that room and say, yeah, I'm only student affairs. As soon as you say that, you're just, you're, you're putting yourself out there as somebody who's not going to be treated uh, yeah. with the level of respect that is required. Um, and you've done right. it to yourself. Um, so uh, I think it's important for people to keep that in mind is that, you know, that is a track and it's absolutely a track. And to your point, seeing a lot of, uh, you know, I'm here in the Boston area and MIT, Harvard, Boston University, Emerson, um, Tufts, those are, at, at, those are the ones I just remember off the top of my head, all had a presidential turnover this year. And so there's a lot of opportunities for executive leadership out there. And, you know, I, I, I do want to have a follow-up question. Now, do you think that that person, like, I think there's a certain personality to a chief student affairs officer, someone who can yeah. literally walk around and talk about literally anything with folks, okay? Do right. you think that served you well on campuses that the HBCUs that I've been on and people I know who are in leadership roles on these campuses, they're very relational. These are yeah. campuses that have a relational quality. Do you think that actually helped position you in a different way than maybe someone who came up through the academic ranks? Oh, I know. I, I think uh, particularly student affairs um, fits into sort of the ethos of HBCU presidents as a whole when they've been thought of that. I mean, you've had scholars over the years, so I don't want to downplay that. But HBCUs are a place that talk about family more than any other type of institution. So somebody who can relate to people then seems like they should be the person that's leading. And actually, uh, ACE's new presidential survey is coming out sooner. But when I've looked at the percentage from student affairs, actually at HBCUs, there's a greater percentage of student affairs VPs that are presidents than the national average. So that makes sense to me because it fits into the whole ethos of institutions that always talk about family. That's very relational. And so the people who are the relational people are the student affairs people. Um, yeah, so though, I think that 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 makes a lot of sense um, to me. And the other thing I would add really to that leads to student affairs, when you think about presidents who leave early, either retire early or resign, I can't think of too many times when you hear somebody say they resigned because the academic program was falling apart. That's not why they resigned. Jason Wingard is leading Temple because they have crime issues in Philadelphia. That really is not his fault, but that's a part of the pressure because of crime in, in Phil or the uh, president um, who is dealing with the issue about a faculty member 
and a, a, a picture as a part of a class and, you know, in terms of Islam and all of that, it's these out of class issues that create some of these early presidential depart departures and not, you know, I'll ever hear anybody say the graduation rate wasn't good and we got rid of the president. I'll never hear that as a reason. It's these, uh, it's these other things that happen. Um, so once again, I just don't know how that prepares you if the challenges that the president is going to face generally have nothing to do with the academic program. Absolutely. Um, question, uh, so I, I talked to my grad students at Boston College, told them that I'm going to be interviewing you, and one of my students in particular uh, is, uh, he said, I want to talk about, I want to hear you ask a question about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what it might like look like on an HBCU campus. And I said, okay. So uh, when I look at the statistics, it says the number of individuals enrolled at HBCUs who do not identify as black or people of color is at around 20%, and this is according to the Clearinghouse. So do you think that there is a different, what, what is HBCU's kind of uh, viewpoint on DEI, and what does it look like on a college campus, especially as it comes to enrollment? Right. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of ways to look at it. You know, working at Morehouse this year, I had a conversation with somebody about this recently, there is a lot of diversity within those men at Morehouse, not just geographical, but their interests. And, you know, I have a group of undergraduates that work with me for the events that we have on campus. And it's 25 guys. They're very different. I mean, it's so I, I see a great level of diversity on that campus every day. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about race. Um, when people look at numbers of race, I always tell people I went to the University of Georgia I never had a black faculty member in four years at the University of Georgia. It is practically impossible for any black student at the HBCU to graduate without having a white professor. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people just look at the student body. They don't ever talk about the faculty. HBCU faculties are very diverse. Yep. They're going to be more diverse than other places. And so that always. So, I mean, how are you looking at it? So I think faculty you have to look at and not just a student body, but just because you have a majority black student body doesn't mean that there is, is absent of diversity. There's a lot of diversity and it's dealing with other issues. I mean, we're all men's institution trying to have conversations about, you know, gay men on the campus and how do they fit in. And that's a part of it, too. So there are lots of different ways to look at it. Uh, and I just think people just sort of look to say, well, it's historically black. That means only black people can go there, which the, the history of most of these institutions shows that there's always been a diverse coalition of people that helped start the institutions. A number of them were named after white men or white women. So Dillard University, James Hardy Dillard, white man out of Virginia. I mean, there and there was this, this diverse coalition that helped with those institutions. So I think they, they've been models of, you know, cross-cultural collaborations in cities to build those institutions up. They've always been that way. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and I think uh, kind of going to our previous conversation about vice presidents uh, of student affairs, when um, several years ago I was on the faculty for a new chief student affairs officer uh, seminar, and I happened to have uh, the vice president from Morehouse and the vice president from Spelman, who were new at the time. Uh, the vice president from Spelman, still at Spelman, uh, his name's Daryl Hallman. So if you've never met him, you got to make sure you meet him. He's just a, a, I, I'm known Daryl when I first started working at Georgia State. You know, so we go back. Okay. We Yeah, we go back 20 some odd years. So, yeah. so one of the things that, that Daryl has said to me over time, um, and this was something that came up even at the beginning uh, when they were just literally 
stepping their toes onto campus and learning about their space. And I think it does align with this idea of, of diversity and what does diversity look like on campus. There were the, there were the students who represented uh, generations of Spelman women and Morehouse men and those who didn't and who were new to the space and their expectations of the space and their expectations about what they were going to get onto the in terms of their relationship with the campus um is that something that you think might be part of that diversity mindset in terms of what people get out of the campus in terms of what their maybe their family relationship or their their lineage might be with the place well i mean yeah you do have some that you know can trace back you know a generation or two of family members who graduated from some of those HBCUs. I think that's important. But I think there's, there is a new generation of students that are coming that have grown up, you know, much probably like my son more than my daughter because his school hasn't been diverse at all, but he wants to go to an HBCU. Um, you're having students who are exclusively choosing HBCUs now to say, I, I feel like I'm missing something in terms of understanding who I am as a person. I'm not deeply rooted in black culture. And they're looking for that versus you have some there that are completely deeply rooted in in culture and black church and all those kinds of things. So that's a different kind because there are people who are coming looking for that. They have not had that experience. Absolutely. Um, so that's a great point. All right. Well, my last question for you, and I want you to think this out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the question. I'm going to do a little pitch and that gives you time to marinate. Um, I'm interested in your top uh, three most essential bold leadership moves that need to be taken by HBCU presidents at this moment in time. So as we're looking at HBCUs at this moment uh, in 2023, um, and I want to remind folks that coming up in the next uh, few weeks and over the re remainder of the summer before I take my summer sabbatical, we have Rick McLennan, former president of North Idaho College, who's going to be coming in talking about politically charged uh, aspects of uh, college leadership and what happens when the state board comes in and fires you uh, because uh, you want to acknowledge Black Lives Matter. Um, in May and June, we're also going to talk about mergers, closures, and all of the ickiness around those co topics. And then finally, we're going to be bringing in the policy board at Beyond Transfer to do a multiple show arc on uh, their white papers focusing on transfer students and why transfer policy may be uh, actually failing uh, transfer students. So uh, Dr. Kimbrough, uh, your thoughts on those uh, three most essential bold leadership moves that you think HBU's, HBCU presidents should be focusing on right now? Well, I think the, the first um, reference is uh, one of your future guests in terms of you know, speaking up about what's important in terms of diversity issues. You look at the things that are happening in Florida and Mississippi and Oklahoma and places like that. And they're asking for um, public institution presidents to submit their budget. What percentage of your budget is related to DEI? Uh, and I tweeted this recently and I've been saying this all the time. I think every HBCU should su submit their whole budget to say, this is why we were founded. This is what we do. We're going to do it unapologetically, period. And, and dare them to do something. I think that's the boldest thing to start speaking out when they're watching these things happening that really have uh, the potential for you to sort of disavow your, the, the, the be the black for HBCU. I, that's the boldest thing that I think could happen right now. I think there's some private college presidents should also start speaking out against that because the attack is on the publics. But I think they should just dare them to say, 
that's everything that we do. We have to have diversity and inclusion um, because think about when we were founded, we weren't included in anything. And so now you want us to give all of that up? Absolutely not. It's everybody, everybody's salary. Everything we do is related to DEI. Deal with it. So I think that's the boldest of moves. The second thing I would say is that, you know, there still are some changes and uh, or there's still, I guess, some interest, national interest in HBCUs is not as high as it was right in 2020. But particularly for those smaller schools that are trying to find a niche now, I mean, it's past time, but they've got to really start figuring out to say, who are we? How do we stand out in the marketplace and how do we really create a niche, a brand that will attract some additional students? Like I said, some of the big institutions, they're doing fine. They're, they're going to be fine. Some of the smaller schools have to really be much more aggressive in saying who we are, why we matter. Uh, I think that's very important. Um, and I guess the last thing is that I think uh, presidents have to really engage uh, their alums even more, other funders, uh, because there still is this massive wealth gap in the country. And one of the challenges coming up, I think, in the future for HBCUs, because we're seeing it already for black students, just not having money to go to school. So you got to start thinking to say, what are we going to do to be able to supplement the funding that students receive either through Congress pushing more uh, forcefully to double or triple Pell grants? Where I don't think we're engaged in that enough. So it might not just all come. I think we can all improve our alumni giving rates, but I think it's got to be a little bit more aggressive with Congress, uh, more aggressive with, you know, the White House, more aggressive, you know, just to say we've got to do more because these students need if we don't address that, that's going to impact the institutions as well. So I guess the overall theme is that there, we need a bolder response from HBCU leadership um, just in everything. It's got to be it can't just be sitting back and waiting, which is what I'm sort of seeing happening with the public institutions. Like I say, in Mississippi just recently came out and asked for that. I'm like, you send your whole budget back. That's the boldest thing. And you have a press conference and all three of the HBCUs in Mississippi could have a press conference and say, we sent our whole budget back. And this is why. And I would give the governor, everybody in Mississippi, a history of HBCUs in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. This is why we were created. This is what we do. And we are not changing. And we dare you to try to cut our funding for doing what we had to do because of the history of this, this state. I think they'll leave them alone. I just, I honestly, if they didn't, there'll be a firestorm like they've never seen before. Yeah. Well, and sometimes bold, bold leadership means you have to take an uncomfortable stance and that is perfectly fine. And so I think your yeah. three outlines there are super important. Um, I always say to folks that when you are a leader, you have to worry about the mission and the, the purpose of your institution first and foremost and not compromise and uh, you know it I think what you've done is you've laid out uh, three bold steps so I appreciate that Dr. Kimbrough um, so Dr. Kimbrough people can find you on Twitter at hip hop prez is there anywhere else uh, you would like people to find you uh, on the socials as they say yeah. So, I mean, Twitter and Instagram are the same hip hop prayers with a Z. And then just they can look up my name for LinkedIn and that's where you'll find me. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Walter Kimbrough, it was great to have you here. I really appreciate it. You're always welcome back. And any friend of Daryl Hall is a friend of mine. So thank you so much. All right. And then this is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. It's a live audio broadcast aired and recorded on the Fireside platform. I am your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I thank you for listening. 
Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up at the Academy. It is the number one higher education newsletter on the Substack platform. And follow me here on Fireside, Twitter, LinkedIn, Post, and uh, link to subscribe to all uh, of my socials. Uh, and that is available scrolling across your screen and in the show notes right now. So thanks, everyone, for being here. Thanks for listening. And now get out there and learn something. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>